to Free Association here on Unsafe Space. I'm your host, Carter Laren. Uh, Free Association is a series here on Unsafe Space with a pretty simple agenda. We just talk to interesting people who can provide important perspective on relevant political, cultural, philosophical issues, things like that. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Scott Horton. Scott is the director of the Libertarian Institute the editorial director of antiwar.com, host of Antiwar Radio, as well as the Scott Horton Show podcast. He's the author of several books, including Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and this, his most recent book, which is called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can follow him at scotthorton.org. You can go to Scott Horton Show on Twitter. And you can go to antiwar.com if you're interested specifically in the anti-war content. Now, before we begin, please consider heading over to unsafespace.com to unload some of your petrodollars to support us. Uh, you know, we'd love to keep bringing you content like this, but we can't do that without your help. Uh, financial supporters get access to our Discord server, where someday we'll start producing more exclusive content. Uh, <laughs> for for those supporters, um, and depending on your level of support, you get your name in the credits. You could get this very peaceful grenade mug. Uh, and finally, don't forget to perform your very own little color revolution on that like button for us. It really helps. All right. Let's uh, let's dive into the chat with Scott Horton. So first of all, welcome back to Unsafe Space. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I think the last time we talked... Um, was February 2nd, I looked it up, which is just a few weeks before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. You provided some great context and background that we weren't getting from them. I don't want the focus of this discussion to be Russia, Ukraine, but I do, since it is in the news, I just figured I would ask you, is there anything that's happened since the invasion that changes your, your stance on U.S. involvement or maybe justifies your stance previously on U.S. involvement? Well, it's just more of the same. I mean, if we talked in February, I probably told you I thought the war wasn't going to happen because, I mean, frankly, I just wasn't paying close enough attention. And I thought that with what little diplomacy that the Biden administration was engaging in, that they meant to put off the war, that they were trying to negotiate a way, you know, um, to figure out a way to prevent the war from breaking out. And that really just wasn't right. And, and that was my own fault for kind of relying on other analysis instead of, you know, because I'm always fighting the last war. And sure. so here I, sure. I'm, you know, focused on the Middle East still while all this is going on. Uh, when certainly in retrospect, it's the case that the Biden administration's diplomacy amounted to telling Putin, you better not. And then that was it. <laughs> Plan B was we'll arm up the Ukrainians to fight you. Um, they did make some concessions. They said, for example, that, and I, I probably mentioned this to you then, they had said repeatedly that, well, we're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. We refuse to right. put it in writing, but we're not going to do that. And what's this about mid-range missiles that we're going to install, uh, you know, nuclear missiles? We're, we're going to do that anyway, which I thought was a credible denial. I didn't think they really meant to do that. Um, yep. uh, and they also, you know, offered to um, allow the Russians to inspect their dual-use missile launchers in Romania and Poland that can be used to fire Tomahawk missiles. And they wanted to demonstrate that, you know, we have no such intention. Um, right. So that was something. But I, I did get that wrong and mischaracterized that as them trying, when really that wasn't them trying. 
that was them making like a, you know, prima facie case that, oh, see, we tried, but not, you know, they, again, they weren't willing to just put it in writing that we're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. When everybody knows Germany would never let it happen anyway. You know, uh, Germany and France both had vetoed it in the past and and the with the border dispute and the Donbass and all that, it was completely off the table, but it was like the sacred principle, not this made up garbage, but this sacred principle that we have this open door and that no one can ever close the open door, even though the whole thing is just a figure of speech anyway. It doesn't mean anything. And, right. and frankly, the Russians have taken NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia off the table, which is where it belonged in the first place. And so why couldn't they just say that? And then look at how the war has been waged. I'm sure you've noticed that from the moment the war began, the American policy has been to pour arms into Ukraine right. to make the war, as they put it, more costly for Russia. We want to bleed Russia. We want to weaken Russia. They're not even shy about it at all. That's our secretary of state and our secretary of defense talking right there. Now, Biden himself talked about regime change in uh, Russia and then, you know, unnamed sources off the record talked to the New York Times all day about how, yeah, we want to see Russia weaken so badly that the government falls. Um, that's their policy. So right now, you know, if the war started on February, what, 22nd, 24th, something around there. Yeah. Uh, and then today is what May the 5th. So, you know, that's, um, just 10 days shy of three months without talking to the Russians. It's been since February the 15th that our secretary of state, Antony Blinken met with Sergei Lavrov. In other words, they're just not trying to solve this thing at all. As, as a, someone said to me on Twitter today, yeah, I just fully expected that once the war broke out, it would be full shuttle diplomacy and everybody would be trying to stop the war as soon as possible. But then, geez, talk about the dog that didn't bark, right? It's, that's just not <laughs> happening at all. They prefer to have the war. They said it themselves over and over again. And in fact, April 5th, Washington Post, everyone check me. April 5th, Washington Post, they say some NATO members, they could be talking about the Americans and also some Eastern European nations here. I, they're not talking about Germany, which is they're contrasting and saying wants to end the war. And they say some NATO members would prefer to see the Ukrainians keep fighting and dying because they're worried they don't want to see the war end too early. Check me, April 5th. Washington Post, plain English. They don't want to yeah. see the war end too early. And so if that means that Ukrainian boys and whoever else is nearby them got to keep getting exploded to death in order for them to make their point, then good. And you can read it too in all of their statements. They're so overconfident, or I don't know how overconfident they are. They're certainly confident that yeah, we can just keep escalating. We're going to pour in these howitzers now. We're going to send in more tanks. We're sending more trainers and more weapons all the time. And essentially, like, this is hilarious what's happening to the Russians. They thought it was going to be easy for them, and we're giving them this tough slog. Hell, even the American planners thought that we'd be backing an insurgency by now, not still backing the state government of Ukraine, which is still standing and which is still fielding an army, and where the Russians don't even control all of the Donbass yet, although... They've taken all the south and the so-called land bridge to uh, the Crimean Peninsula and all of that. But, you know, I was talking with Douglas McGregor the other day, and he was saying since all of the negotiations failed, once the Americans started crying genocide, 
And then also once the Ukrainians sunk that Russian battleship, then yep. the talks have essentially stopped. And since then, the Russians have expanded their goals and said that they're going to march all the way to Transnistria, which is this tiny little strip of land on the western border of Ukraine with Moldova. That's the west bank of the Dniester River there, which is loyal to Moscow and is like a 15 mile wide strip of land and which is occupied by people who are loyal to Moscow. And so, of course, from the Russian narrative point of view, and maybe there's some truth to this, they're in danger from Ukraine and the Ukrainians could attack them at any time. And so the only way to guarantee their safety would be to finally build that land bridge. Then now we're talking about all of southwestern Ukraine as well, all the way to Moldova. Um, and that would include then taking the city of Odessa as well. So if they do that, it's going to take a long time for them to do that. They don't even have all of the Donbass yet. But yeah. Douglas McGregor says he expects that the Russian war aims will now have expanded to include this, as he put it, this belt of all of southern Ukraine, all the way to Moldova. So I, and you know what? I don't know if the Americans pouring in Javelin missiles can make the difference against that or not. I suspect maybe. You know, McGregor said, look, you can't just give a man a howitzer. You got to teach him how to use it. But the Americans are training Ukrainians by the hundreds and hundreds in Germany right now and in two other undisclosed locations, probably in Poland, um, where they are training these guys on these weapons. So I don't know about tanks, but, you know, long guns. Sure. I mean, the, the coverage in the U.S. has been it alternates. It alternates between um kind of kind of what you were saying this this smug celebration of how Russia is incompetent and we're defeating them or they're they're being defeated and sob stories about uh how Russia is committing war crimes and and the poor Ukrainian people which I think are true like I I'm, I do feel bad for the Ukrainian people but they seem to be caught in the middle well look uh Scott I'm just going to make this announcement for everyone so they all feel better about themselves even Scott Horton can underestimate the Warhawks' desire for war. So it's okay if you didn't. It's a mistake on my part. <laughs> Look, I mean, um, I think part of it is, you know, when I was younger, I was a lot more of a conspiracy kook, and I actually got a lot of things right because I was willing to speculate way off the deep end where I wouldn't out, but I made a lot of great calls. Like as soon as W. <laughs> Bush started running for governor in 94, I told my math teacher, junior in high school, oh, you see what they're going to do? They're going to run either Jeb or Junior will be a governor, second term governor by the year 2000. So that means they'll throw the election 96 for Bill and then we'll have a governor Bush be elected 2000 and then we'll go back to war with Iraq. And I was just a stupid high school wow. kid. I was, you know, <laughs> but the thing is, too, that there have been times in my life where I predicted bad stuff was going to happen and then it didn't happen. And then I was embarrassed. So I learned, you know, like a like Pavlov's dog, essentially, right, to just not be alarmist because then, you know, I end up squealing. So then it turns out there are times where I should be alarmist and I'm not alarmist enough. Not. And I think, nah, 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 <laughs> this is going to blow over. All this worst case scenario stuff is not true. Um, and then the real lesson there, too, is that my job is not really telling you what's going to happen next week. I mean, I'm essentially like right. a, a very crackpot amateur historian here talking about what's happened in the very recent past up to and including today um 
But the problem was, of course, with that whole narrative during that buildup was our government kept making predictions that the war was about to start. So then the question is, well, what's your prediction? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I mean, we already know they're not going to join NATO. And we already know they're not really going to deploy nuclear missiles in Ukraine. And so, like, it's kind of a trumped up case on Putin's part anyway. And he has so much to lose by doing it. Why do it? You know, when I should have been taking it more seriously, I think. You know? Yeah. Well, it. Uh, you know, we, I'll put we in quotes, we wanted it, right? <laughs> so, so it yeah, happened. We meaning, yeah, the, the U.S. government, I think they clearly did. And you know what? The, the real clincher to me is if you go back to, it might be January, I think it's December of 21, where Admiral Stravridis, who was going to be Hillary Clinton's Secretary of Defense, if not Michelle Florinoy, he was going to be right up there, maybe National Security Advisor or something. He invoked Afghanistan and Syria and told the New York Times, listen, we don't know the first thing about how to defeat an insurgency, okay? I admit that. <laughs> but we sure know how to back one like we did in <laughs> Afghanistan and like we did in Syria. So like, this is just a few months, three, four months after losing the Afghan war, the 20 year, you know, counter overreaction to the consequences of the last time we backed an insurgency in Afghanistan. We've only been out of there a couple of months after losing that war to the Taliban that then took over that entire country on our way out the door. And then they want to invoke Obama's dirty war in Syria that led to the rise of the Islamic Caliphate that conquered all of Western Iraq. And then we had to launch a rock war three in order to help the Shiites to smash it again. And all of this. Are they crazy? How crazy are these people, man? It's just unbelievable. And they just talk about it. Oh, I know what I'll tell the New York Times. He he he. Here, quote me on this. He he he. It'll be just like what we did in Syria. God, man. They're bad people, I'm afraid. They're very bad. Well, this is a good segue to talk about your latest book. I mean, this is your latest book, enough already. Uh, time to end the war on terrorism. Um, and, I mean, I, I don't know, man. Maybe if you had uh, reread your own book like two months ago, you'd have went, no, they, they want war. <laughs> That's yeah. what they want. Um, let's, so the, the theme of this book, as far as I can tell, you can correct me, but the theme of this, this book seems to be not just that the war on terror doesn't work, but that it's counterproductive as such. Um, am I right about that? And if I am, can you kind of make, outline the general case for, for that, you know, you don't have to go into super detail, sure. but outline the general case for that. I mean, I, I would recharacterize that a little bit. I mean, I think the, the okay. real bottom line of it all essentially is that the war on terrorism is a bait and switch, right? Where we okay. need a justification to be in the Middle East. So we focus on the consequences from our presence <laughs> in the Middle East <laughs> and say, that's why we got to be there. But then, as you can tell, for more than half the book, we're fighting on Al Qaeda's side against the Shiites and others that we hate more. The Russians, yep. for example, uh, Bill Clinton back in the Chechens against the Russians as late as 1999. In fact, mm -hmm. Colleen Rowley, you might remember, she was the um, FBI whistleblower. She was a lawyer for the Minneapolis office of the FBI. And they had arrested a guy named Zacharias Musawi, 
who had been in flight school and want to learn how to fly a plane, but wasn't too interested in how to take off or land one. And the local FBI agents there, one of them even speculated, hey, this guy could maybe hijack a plane from Heathrow and then crash it into the World Trade Center. They were just regular gumshoe cops trying to do their job. Well, the supervisors back in Washington, D.C. told them they were not allowed to get a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant for Zacharias Moussaoui's computer. This is the kind of warrant they got against Carter Page. Now, the yep. Fourth Amendment says if they want to search you, wiretap you, they need probable cause. They need to explain to a judge why they believe that if they tap you, it will lead to evidence of a crime that they can prosecute you for, that they're a crime that they're investigating. Um, but for a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant, all you have to show is a reasonable belief that the subject is an agent of a foreign power or a foreign terrorist group. And in that case, and a reasonable belief is a cop has a hunch based on anything, anything, right, right is good we enough. We leaked some stuff to the press that was a lie and then used it in our exactly. to justify our warrant for sure. Carter Page, for yeah, exactly. <laughs> and which is what the Minneapolis boys should have done, I guess, right? Because <laughs> yeah. what happened was the um, FBI supervisors said, well, listen, your connection with this guy, Musawi's connection to terrorism and bin Ladenite, you know, anti-American terrorism is that his brother fights with the jihadists in Chechnya. But we like the jihadists in Chechnya. <laughs> yeah, we're backing them. That's not good enough <laughs> for a Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act warrant. You can read Colleen Rowley's article about this at consortiumnews.com where she talks about this. Um, and then uh, Stratford.com, this is just a funny anecdote as long as I'm off on this tangent. Somebody, I had said on a radio show or one of these podcast interviews or something that it's in the WikiLeaks from the Stratford leak about American support for the terrorists in Chechnya. And a guy on Twitter called me out and was like, hey man, I looked all through that and I can't find that. And I'm like, wait a minute. Now, I know I'm not wrong about that. Like, what am I, an idiot? There's no way I got that wrong. So yep. I go and I start searching WikiLeaks too. And I can't find it either. And I'm pretty good with a Google there, you know? What the hell? <laughs> and I'm looking and I'm looking. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe somebody's calling me out. And I know I'm right, but I can't find it. And like time is running out on like, I got to answer this guy. And then I finally take WikiLeaks out of my search terms. And no, it's not in the WikiLeaks. It's right there on Stratfor's website. You can read it yourself. Oh. It's not even hidden behind their paywall at all. <laughs> you just go read it yourself. Stratfor, U.S. Saudi support for the Chechen terrorists under Bill Clinton in 1999. And it's all right there. Read it and weep. There's a, the wow. Russians want to reactivate this Soviet era pipeline and we want to stop them. So we're supporting Osama bin Laden and his men. <laughs> and then uh, there's a guy named Yosef Bodansky, who I went and found this great thing. I reprinted it at scotthorton.org slash fair use if people want to go look at it. And this guy was the lead congressional investigator on some foreign affairs committee or whatever in the House in the late 90s. And he wrote this awesome essay all about Bill Clinton's support for the terrorists in Chechnya to try to destroy this pipeline or, you know, prevent the pipeline from being reactivated through there and all of that. And he was, you know, an investigator for for Congress, for the U.S. Congress, who went and wrote this all of this up. Yosef Bodansky was his name. Um, so anyway, and then it, it's it's like that in Libya and in Syria and in Yemen. We're right back on the side of the jihadists. And there's a funny part in the Syria chapter where I talk about how, first of all, 
America is backing al-Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. That's who the CIA is backing. The worst terrorist, jihadist, suicide bombers from Iraq War II. They're now the moderate rebels, and we love them because they're supporting, because they're fighting against a secular government that is allied with the Shiites in Iran. And we hate them because we gave them Baghdad and we're mad that we did. So now we're trying to take them But we used to like them. Huh? (laughs) But we used to like them. We just hate them now. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, in fact, that's another story. We like them when they took over in the Iranian Revolution in February 1979. It was fine. Jimmy Carter's government was fine with that. Did you realize and recognize the hostage crisis didn't happen till November, 10 months later? And that was when David Rockefeller convinced Jimmy Carter to let the Shah into the United States for cancer treatment. And that's what caused the riot and the seizing of the hostages at the embassies and the souring of our relations with Iran ever since then. But you're absolutely right. At When the Iranian revolution broke out, the CIA and the State Department told Jimmy Carter, we like these guys. The Ayatollah, he helped us overthrow Mossadegh right? in 53. Yeah. And yeah. so I even remember, I don't know if you remember this, but there's footage I've seen from wherever the hell I got it of, uh, I saw this when I was a kid of the Ayatollah Khomeini getting on the plane in Paris, France to go home to Iran. And even as a kid, I wondered, well, aren't the French our friends? Why would they send this guy home to inherit the revolution if we didn't want him to do that? Well, and the answer, of course, is we did want him to do that. Jimmy Carter's government told them to do that. They didn't mind Ayatollah Khomeini inheriting the revolution. It only all went to hell with the hostage crisis 10 months later. Uh, so, That's why they hate the Shiites now is once that happened, they declared independence from us. And so that's why Jimmy Carter supported Saddam Hussein's war against them, which then led to, in the consequences, led to the war against Kuwait and then Iraq War I and then the entire 1990s embargo and blockade and sanctions regime against Iraq while we're waiting for Iraq War II. So then in Iraq War II, we give the whole damn country to the Shiites, who Saddam had ruthlessly suppressed, the Sunni warlord. So now that we gave Iran to the, uh, Iraq to the Shiites, well, they're in bed with the Iranians, not with us. So now we're mad about that. That is, we, me and the W. Bush administration is mad that they just screwed up. So they start working harder on supporting al-Qaeda terrorists against the likes of Iran, Hezbollah in Lebanon, and the Iranian and Shiite allied Alawite regime in Syria. So that's why when Obama comes into power, he's not a secret Muslim from Kenya. He's just W. Bush. And he comes in, he picks up the same policy. You know, they try to put the Syrian National Council in power there. Well, who was that? That was the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, who called them the Syrian National Council? Liz Cheney called them the Syrian National Council. When she worked for the State Department in the Bush and Cheney years, was the one who had built that whole thing up that Hillary and Obama tried to install in power. Um, so then uh, they, uh, in backing the uh, Shiite side, I mean, pardon me, in backing the, the uh, Sunni bin Ladenite side against the Shiites in Syria, and literally the Iraqi jihadists from Iraq War II are now the moderate rebels we're supporting against the Shiites, which means that the Shiites that we supported in Iraq War II, the Bada Brigade and the PMU militias, the various Shiite militias, they came to Syria to help Hezbollah and Iran help the Syrian government fend off 
the CIA and the radical Sunni bin Ladenites. Still with me? Now, barely. The caliphate, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the caliphate takes over all of Western Iraq in 2014. So the yep. Iraqi Shiite militias that we wish we hadn't fought for in Iraq War II and we're fighting against in Syria, well, they got to go home to help defend Baghdad from the Islamic State. Yep. Um, so the uh, Iranians then go to Afghanistan and ask the Hazaras, who are Afghan Shiites, to come to Syria to help fight. Well, the Hazaras are the same people we've been fighting the war for 20 years to force their coalition into power. Those are our allies who we've been fighting to protect. In fact, they're being horribly persecuted by the Taliban right now. Um, those, are the, those are our buddies from Afghanistan come with Iran to fight against us in Syria. While you literally had right at this time as the time of Obama's tripling of the Afghan war in the great Afghan surge, which of course failed anyway, hundreds of thousands of people killed for nothing, but you had uh, substantial groups subgroups, I guess, of Afghan Taliban. Again, they're not radical Sunnis, they're conservative Sunnis, but they're on the Sunni side. They go to Syria to fight for America and the CIA and the so-called moderate bin Ladenite rebels against the, uh, the Shiite allied government there. And then that was when, and then once the Islamic Caliphate took over, then everything got completely out of control. So then America had to ally with the Shiites again, at least in Iraq. They, they couldn't yep. admit it and ally with the Shiites in Syria. But at least on the Iraqi side of the line, they sided with the Shiites again to fight ISIS. On the Syrian side of the line, they had to team up with the Kurds to fight ISIS, um, who again, they had inflicted on these poor people in the first place. But then this led to the headline that you're probably familiar with and your audience might remember from the Los Angeles Times, DOD-backed Kurds fight CIA-backed bin Ladenite terrorists <laughs> in Syria. Yes. And then, so this is about the Kurds fighting the bin Ladenites over the town of Afrin, which the Kurds has, had originally cleansed. And then the uh, Turkish-backed uh, and CIA-backed bin Ladenites took back and committed horrible war crimes against the, the Kurdish there, including butchering the, the female fighters and so forth. Um, yep. So that's what this, that's what the book's about. <laughs> so <laughs> enough already is I, I called it that cause I couldn't think of a better name for the thing other than we just have to quit this. Now you can't allow a bunch of people like this to be your security force and to wage a war on terrorism for you when they just won't wage a war on terrorism. They'll do whatever it is that they want. And call it whatever you in the want. name of terror and we in the name of waging the war on terrorism. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and maybe we shouldn't start with the end, but I like the very very. I'm going to read the very end. Um, your your recommendation is we just have to call the whole thing off, ceasing intervention and relying on the thorough vetting of those who enter our country to make sure they never worked for the U.S. or our allies as paid mercenary terrorists will have to do. <laughs> I just think that's such a it's such a hilarious. Uh, way to describe it, but true. I mean, there's another spot in the book. I can't remember where this is, but you you make the statement that the U.S. has fought basically on both sides of everyone, everywhere at some point in time, and sometimes at the same time um, in the past several decades. Uh, and I think as a layperson, so this book reminds me a little bit of Max Blumenthal's uh, mm -hmm. uh, Management of Savagery book. Because Thank just, you. I appreciate it, that very it, much. I'm proud that book. you would say that. 
great yeah, book. I mean, absolutely great book. It, all it, it is is it's the Max Blumenthal version of the same story I'm telling. It's just different, but it's the same thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah, but it's it, it is enough for writing is a good visceral name because it, it it evokes the emotion that you have, which is this is so complex and so effed up. It's so chaotic and so insane, and it, it continues for so long that it's not. There's not a. I think one of the reasons that people um, don't look at this and ignore it is it's really hidden in a lot of complexity. There's just so much going on here, and it makes it hard to follow. If someone's like, "Okay, well, who is this guy? He's connected to 14 other people and funded by three different people at different times in his career, and has done this and has done that, and then this move." It's like it, things get very, very complex very easily. Um, but I, but I want to talk. Let's let's back up and try and simplify this for people a little bit, and let's just talk about um, let's talk about Osama bin Laden's goals for nine eleven because this war on terror, uh nine eleven was the justification for this, right? This was the hey, we're going to cram the Patriot Act down your throat. Uh, you know, now you've got to deal with the TSA and and reduced. Uh, civil liberties, and also we're going to fight this war on an abstract concept, which is, you know, whenever we want, wherever we want. That's what we're doing. Um, and you point out uh, very deftly that the all of bin Laden's goals were achieved by us. Um, everything he was trying to do, almost everything he was trying to do, we did for him. Um, with our war on terror. And you quote, you actually quote his son at one point. Um, I'm wondering if maybe you can, I mean, I could read the quote from the son, but maybe you can just tell us. Oh, sure. I got the In a nutshell, what yep. was Osama bin Laden's goal and how was he trying, what was his his hope? What was his, his, his uh, pie in the sky idea for what 9-11 would do for his goals? Right. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you asked me about this. And, and if people want kind of a shorter version of this same argument, if you go to my archive at antiwar.com slash Scott, you'll see that just it's three or four articles ago. It's called Peter Bergen is mistaken about Osama bin Laden's motive or something like that. I was trying to be diplomatic. So Peter Bergen's argument is that bin Laden thought that if he hit us, we'd turn tail and run. My argument is that bin Laden was jerking Peter Bergen's chain. And that all this talk about America's a paper tiger, Americans are weaklings, Americans will turn and run, was essentially him taunting the Americans. Because, and you could argue, I think probably fairly, that maybe plan A was, well, you know, when, when um, it wasn't really Hezbollah, but whoever was uh, truck bombed them in Beirut in 83, they left. They turned around and left. When yep. they got shot down in Somalia in 93, they turn around and left. So this is what he said. So all we're going to do is we're going to hit them a few more times and then they'll turn around and leave us alone. We'll drag them into Afghanistan and there'll be a big bloody battle and then they'll turn around and leave. Yep. Uh, I think you could argue fairly that that was plan A. But I don't think that you can argue fairly that bin Laden was a damned fool and that that's what he was really counting on. And there are plenty of other uh, evidences to the contrary. Um, so for one example, uh, bin Laden told Abdelbari Atwan of Al-Quds al-Arabi 
uh, paper out of London, England, in an interview in 1997, that it had been his men who had organized the shootdown of the Black Hawk and the fighting that killed the Rangers and Delta operators in Mogadishu in 1993 in the Black Hawk Down episode. And then he talked about how disappointed he was that Bill Clinton turned around and left because he said what he was trying to do was he wanted to replicate Afghanistan right then and there against the Americans. He wanted to bleed us through a war of attrition, just like we talked about the Americans are talking about doing to the Russians now in Ukraine, replicating what they had done under the Reagan administration, Carter and then Reagan uh, in the 1980s against the Soviet Union, bog them down through a war of attrition, bleed them to bankruptcy and force them out the hard way. And so he was Which, which Bin Laden was part of. So he knew this That's strategy. Right. This, That's exactly yeah. right. And in fact, you know, so I'm 45. So I grew up in an era where everybody gave Ronald Reagan and the CIA credit for the Mujahideen's victory in Afghanistan. And furthermore, for the Soviet Union's disillusion. And I don't think anyone could argue the fact that the Afghan war in the 1980s was one of the straws that broke the camel's back in terms of the stability of the Soviet Union as the whole thing was just unraveling. I mean, they pulled the last of their guys out in 1989, right halfway through the end of the, from the time between the collapse of the wall and the final dissolution of the USSR. So that's certainly part of the story. Well, guess what? That's what bin Laden thought too, was look how well that worked. If we could bring down the Soviets, we can bring down the Americans. His uh, mentor, Abdullah Azam, had told Eric Margulies as early as 1986, as soon as we're done with the Soviets, we're coming for you next. Um, and for the same reason, because of your empire on our territory. And Margulies was like, what the hell are you talking about then? But later he realized that actually we have been expanding our footprint in the Persian Gulf quite a bit here. And this does make a lot of sense. It's something to really be worried about. Um, so... Um, then, uh, there's also, um, another major piece of evidence would be when, um, uh, Alan Cullison from the wall street journal went to Kabul right at the dawn of the war at, in 2001, um, they found what had been the government offices there, you know, the Taliban government offices. And he went in there and stole some computers or bought them from a kid who had stolen from out of there or something and bought some computers. And one of them, the government uh, I guess he was able to copy the contents of one before the government ran off with both of them. So he doesn't know it was on the other computer. We got one computer and you can read, he quotes this in, in an article in the Atlantic. It's in, uh, I think both of my books. Um, you know, it's certainly in an article in the Atlantic. You can read all about this. Cullison is the name where, and he quotes, you know, the full letter from bin Laden to Mullah Omar, the leader of the Taliban. And he's essentially kissing his butt and saying, hey, man, I'm really sorry that I got you into this and that the Americans are bombing you right out of power right now. And I know you're very mad at me, but trust me, man. See, here's the deal. The Americans are in a real tough spot. If they turn and run quickly, then they lose all credibility in their status as a world power. But if they stay, then we're going to get the exact same effect only after 10 years of brutally bleeding them and bankrupting them and forcing them out the hard way. Well, it took 20. America's got a stronger economy than the USSR ever did. Um, but essentially, it reveals that his plan right there was 
to sacrifice, right? Just like a Democrat, you know, Osama bin Laden, the Democrat. Well, what we want to do is we want to keep the Afghans fighting and dying so that the war does not end too early, right? right. As, right. as we know, a million Afghans died in the war. And here bin Laden in the 80s war at the hands of the Soviets. And here bin Laden's trying to replicate that. Yep. He's trying to replicate that. If a million Afghans have to die in the American war, well, that's okay too. Hey, if they're believers, then Allah let them into heaven. Who cares, right? And if they're not believers, then who cares? Who cares? So, <laughs> yeah, let let God sort that out. Um, but but obviously his mandate is we've got to bog the Americans down and bleed them to bankruptcy and force them out the long way and the hard way, just the same as we had done to uh, the Soviets. And then and that's the other major piece of evidence. Well, there's a couple more. Bin Laden bragged about this in his speech of 2004, which Bergen says is just after the fact rationalization, which I don't think so. Um, he, you know, the way he says it is very plain. And then in 2010, his son Omar gave an interview to Rolling Stone. Now, this is not his son Hamza, who was a terrorist, who I think, you know, Trump's government uh, killed in 2019. Um, this is a non, his non-terrorist son, went and did an interview with Rolling Stone. Guy Lawson is the reporter's name. And uh, they went and met at a, a nightclub in Damascus, Syria. This is a year before America turned Syria upside down. Yep. Um, and bin Laden was still alive. Um, right. It was just as Obama was killing Osama was when he was taking his side in Libya and then Syria. Right. So this is just before that. And, um, you know, Bin Laden's son, you can tell this is not, you know, brilliant, crafty public relations on behalf no. of his father or his <laughs> yeah. movement. This is just a guy saying what he knows, you know, essentially. Definitely some naivete about American presidents and politics in this. Sure. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, he's he's not that sophisticated. And he's just I, I think that's a great point. I mean, it, it goes to show that he's not that sophisticated. He's essentially just regurgitating what he's been told. And he says, look, I was with my dad in, Af in Afghanistan in 2001, that summer. And I was trying to get him to give this stuff up and he wouldn't do it. And I told him, well, I can't hang with you. I'm leaving. And he said, fine, bye. And he tells that whole story in there and everything. But he says, in 2000, when the Supreme Court finally decided on W. Bush, he says, my father was so happy. Now, for the young people watching this, you may not even remember, Bush was running against Al Gore, who was seen as like an even wimpier and lamer version of Bill Clinton, right? Um, yep. The idea was that W. Bush, being a Republican, and even though he's from Connecticut, likes to pretend that he's a West Texas, you know, macho, tough guy and all of this stuff with his cowboy hat, which I don't know if you people know, but everybody should know. That, that ranch in Crawford, they bought that in 1999. It was just a I thought, set. I thought he was from Texas. He's from Connecticut. He's from Connecticut. Um, <laughs> he's a boy. He wasn't Ronald Reagan's son. He was Bush's son. Reagan was from California, but um, no, he was he was Bush's son. And the Bushes are northeastern folk. Um, they bought that Crawford Ranch in '99 as just a set piece for the campaign. We'll dress him up in a in Wrangler jeans and a cowboy hat, and put, and the whole thing was just completely fake. The whole thing was fake. It was just fake. But anyway, so bin Laden saw that and thought, this is a perfect mark right here. Here's the yep. guy, I'm going to slap him in the face in front of his girlfriend, and I'm going to trick him into chasing me around the corner where me and my 15 friends are waiting with baseball bats for a sorry ass. And that was exactly what they did. 
And, and, and now, you know, people get mad at me sometimes and say, like, I'm making excuses for Bush by calling him stupid. But the point is not just that he was dumb. I'm not saying like he had the best of intentions and tried his best. Um, it's not just that he was dumb. It was that he was corrupt. And that was what, you know, bin Laden, you know, this is the other thing. This is another reason there's so many 9-11 truthers is because the Bush government tried so hard at the beginning to conflate Al-Qaeda with the Taliban. And you look at the Taliban and they're a bunch of hillbillies from the far side of the town of Bedrock from here. They're not capable of doing this. And then you're telling me that, and then the, the reason they did it is because they hate how free we are and all of this crap, right? But right. bin Laden was not an Afghan. Bin Laden's a Saudi and the son of a billionaire. And why is he a billionaire? Because the bin Laden group is the Halliburton of Saudi Arabia. They are the major construction contractor for the government of Saudi Arabia. And their family has done business in Houston with the Texas oil men for generations. Uh, you know, Ayman al-Zawahiri, bin Laden's right-hand man, was a heart surgeon in Cairo. The guys that were the lead hijackers on September 11th, three out of four of those planes were flown by guys who were engineering students in Hamburg, Germany. Again, Egyptians, not Afghan hillbillies, right? It was our government lied that it was the Taliban that did it. And people then got, you know, the whole issue confused. But yeah. did and by the way, Laden just as quickly, as you American point out, I just huh? want to, as just for people, I want to point out something that you did, which I, did, I hadn't realized. None of the hijackers was from were from our our enemies of the state. They were all friendly Middle Eastern countries that the hijackers were from. None of them were from the enemy countries. Right, uh, right. So first of all, none of them were Afghans. And just to wrap up that last point, Bin Laden understood politics and business in Texas. Bin Laden was not a hillbilly from Afghanistan. So he knew in, that in, in Bush, he saw the perfect mark. And as his son said to Rolling Stone, you know, in Clinton's time, you sent a few cruise missiles and you didn't get my father. Well, now you've been in Afghanistan all these years and you still don't have my father. And he spent all these billions of dollars. In Clinton's time, America was smart, not like the bull that runs after the red scarf. Right. So this is, again, out of the mouths of babes. Right. Like there's no way there's no pretension here. This is simply, yeah, my dad said what he was trying to do was he was going to smack this Bush fella in the mouth and then Bush was going to take advantage of the crisis by launching a giant war, like a bull that goes after the red scarf. And then, as he said, and then we'll do to the Americans the same thing we did to the Russians. Yeah. And on like that. And th there may be a couple more citations along those lines. Again, if you look at uh, antiwar.com slash Scott, then um, you'll get that right. Uh, you'll, you'll find all that. It's at uh, Peter Bergen. The article is Peter Bergen is mistaken about bin Laden's motives, where I go through all the evidence as I can there. Um, but then, yes, it is absolutely correct that the hijackers were all from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Lebanon, and UAE. And so uh, all of these are allies of the United States of America. The vast majority of them were from Saudi Arabia. Those were the muscle hijackers. And then the pilots, as I said, uh, were mostly Egyptians. Um, who had been studying in Hamburg, Germany. None of them were from Iran, Iraq, or Syria. They all hated us, or I'm sorry? Or Afghanistan. Right, Or and, yeah. and none of them were Palestinians either, right? right? None of them were from Gaza or the West Bank either. They were all from countries, and they were motivated by their government's 
subservience to an alliance with the United States of America. That was bin Laden's whole thing. He wanted to overthrow King Fahd, but he couldn't. Why do you want to overthrow him? Because King Fahd was hosting American military bases on his soil to bomb Iraq with. Um, right? But that was what he wanted to do. Ayman al-Zawahiri had been rounded up and tortured by Hosni Mubarak after the assassination of Anwar Sadat. He wanted his revenge against Mubarak. But they figured they couldn't wage their local revolutions until they got rid of us first. So they were, you know, it was entirely, they were entirely motivated by the fact that we were too close of friends with the countries that they were from. And then what does Bush do? Immediate bait and switch and go to Baghdad. And, you know, we're finding out more and more all the time. And actually, I know more about this than many because of who my wife is. Um, she's a reporter and this is her story um, about the Saudi role in running the hijackers. And, you know, we knew that they supported them for a very long time. And we knew that uh, this guy Bayoumi in San Diego was a Saudi intelligence officer as well as an FBI informant and that the CIA knew that the hijackers were staying with him there. Um, and we knew that Prince Bandar's wife had been writing checks to the guy. Um, so we had the direct connection to Prince Bandar bin Sultan there. But, um, well, I'm not sure what's already been published recently and what's still coming out, so I should not say too much more. But there's, you know, more and more, it looks like it, the Saudi government didn't just sort of kind of help, but really helped to organize and run sure. the September 11th attack on this country, which raised a hell of a lot of questions because they're our allies. I mean, Prince Bandar was not an enemy of the United States of America. If he did that, then it was for truth or reasons, right? It was because he had a deal with America to do it, almost certainly. I mean, I don't know. But Saddam Hussein sure as hell didn't, and the yeah. Ayatollah sure as hell didn't, and Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, he had nothing to do with it. You know, Arafat and the PLO, um, the Hamas in in Gaza. It wasn't them. You know, it was Saudis and and um, and, and, you know, anyway. Yeah. And then so what do they do again with the bait and switch? They go after the Taliban that didn't do it and, in fact, tried to warn us about it and try to negotiate bin Laden's extradition. And Bush wouldn't went to war anyway. Then he goes after Saddam Hussein, the guy with the olive green and the clean shaven chin and the French beret, right? Who's like, you know, the second or third most Western dictator of the right. Middle East. Um, Sometimes our friend, except for when he gets tricked into invading Kuwait and then yeah, exactly. friend. Yeah. Right. Then they go after Libya, again, another socialist secular dictator. Bashar al-Assad, again, another socialist secular dictator. This, this guy wears a three-piece suit. Gaddafi yep. always with the colonel military uniform. Gaddafi was the first one to put out an Interpol arrest warrant for Osama bin Laden for his role in backing the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, who, as you know, Obama and Hillary backed in the war of 2011 there um, and are still a problem in that country now. Um, and, and so, yeah, they just gone after. And then they went after uh, the Houthis in Yemen, who were Shiites and were like, friends with Iran, but not really even allies of Iran. There was a great uh, article by a real expert named Yust Hilterman in foreign policy back years ago called The Houthis Are Not Hezbollah. And it was about how, yeah, Hezbollah, you could call them Iran's 51st state there in southern Lebanon in a way if you want, but that's just not true for the Houthis any more than you're my 51st state, right? Like we know each other, bro, but like, you know, 
Uh, I'm not your agent. That's right. People can embellish all they want, but it doesn't make it true, you know? Um, And so, um, and, and so just because the Saudis were pissed that the Houthis were friends with Iran, Obama and Trump and Biden have been willing to take Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula side, real ass Al Qaeda guys against the Houthis there for now seven years. A war that's cost hundreds of thousands of lives, bare minimum half a million killed. And these are not Al Qaeda linked like BS propaganda that they'll claim about whoever they want to kill in Niger or whatever. Um, These guys are the guys that helped organize the September 11th attack. Hani Hanjur, the pilot on flight 77, his father-in-law ran the switchboard house in Yemen where they passed the intelligence of the, the messages back and forth from Afghanistan to Europe and America. These guys bombed the coal. These guys tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 and tried to blow up two more planes with the so-called printer package, explosive plots. And they did the attacks in Paris, France as well. Charlie Hebdo and the Eagles, the death metal concert there. Or was it the Nice attack? I always forget. It was two of the three of those, the Nice truck attack, uh, the Eagles, the death metal concert and the Charlie Hebdo attack there in France, those massacres. Um, that was AQAP. Real ass Al Qaeda guys. And in fact, our current Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, was passing intelligence to the Houthis to use to kill Al Qaeda guys as late as January, February 2015. It was in March that Obama turned around, stabbed them in the back, and took their side against the Houthis in a war that is just treason. And again, it's not because Obama's a secret Muslim from Kenya. It's not. It's because he picked up this policy from W. Bush. And that's really another major theme of the book, right? Is, as I said before, Bush gave Baghdad to Iran's best friends. Yep. And so the rest of American Middle East policy from 2005, still during Bush, from 2005 and six through right now, is attempting to make up for that fact because America's alliance in the Middle East is the Sunni kings of the GCC, you know, um, and including throw in the Egyptians, the Turks, and the Israelis. So that's it. That's why, as I say in the Syria chapter, I go, that's why the following unbelievable things in this chapter are true. It's, It's just completely crazy. But when you understand the why of it, then you can see why they would do such crazy things is to make up for the crazy, stupid, horrible thing they'd done before that. Well, so let's let's get back to uh, man. There's every time I talk to you, there's so much information that it's in your head that comes out. It's awesome. Um, so let's let's simplify this and get back to the, the, when when we talk about Osama's motivation, Osama bin Laden's motivation. Um, there is a contention of people still. There's a belief still that's like, oh well, it's the it's the radical Islam. It's the it, this is a religious. This is primarily this was primarily religious um, war against us. And you make a really interesting. You make a couple really interesting points about this. One is um, even if his motivations personally were religious, which I don't think they were, but even if they were religious, uh, it wasn't religious motivation that recruited. His recruitment message that resonated that worked was based on America's occupation and um and the and the terror that that resulted from American presence in in Middle Eastern countries. And how what religion was used for seems to be what I think you called it a shared identity, a sense of shared identity and solidarity that 
all of us in this region are Muslim. We're all Muslim together. And these outsiders are killing our Muslims. And that's what energized a lot of the people. And you 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 cite some stats from – and by the way, one thing I really loved about this also is a lot of the stuff that you – almost everything that you're talking about that I can remember – these aren't like weird, crazy sources that you're citing. You're not like, well, Alex Jones says blah, blah, blah. These are like CIA has concluded this. This mainstream source said this. You're just piecing it all together. And and they're saying, look, these terrorists are not motivated by religion for the most part. Some of them use it to rationalize what they're doing. But they are motivated by America's presence and um, and by America's war crimes. I mean, there's horrible, horrible things that have been done to people in the Middle East for decades by the American military. And I just want to read, I'm sorry, I'm on a rant here, but it really, ugh, this this quote, this is Osama bin Laden in, um, man, where was he? Was he talking to, I think he's talking to the CNN reporter. This is early on. And he says, crap, I can't find it. Here we go. He's talking to Peter Arnett of CNN in 1997. This is in your book. We declare jihad against the U.S. government because the U.S. government is unjust, criminal, and tyrannical. It has con- – and by the way, it doesn't matter if he believes this. This is what's resonating with people, right? It has committed acts that are extremely unjust, hideous, and criminal, whether directly or through its support of the Israeli occupation of Palestine. We believe the U.S. is directly responsible for those who were killed in Palestine, Lebanon, and Iraq. The mention of the U.S. reminds us before everything else of those innocent children who were dismembered their heads and arms cut off in the recent explosion that took place in Kana. And there's another, there's another spot in this, in this book where you quote, I don't remember which U S official it is, but um, you quote, you quote some U S official as kind of saying, well, y- you know, the civilians are, they're, they're responsible for their government too. So we don't really care about casualties. against the civilians. So this is the kind of the attitude that's been going on. And I just, the reason I want to bring all this up is I want to push back against, I know there's a lot of people that are watching that are going to say, No, this is really a religious motivation. It's stop blaming the U.S. You're victim blaming. You're, you know, you're, you're blaming the U.S. for, for, for 9-11. And I want to really push back on this idea that it's religiously motivated um, because you, you make a really good argument that it's not at all. And can you expand on that a a little bit just to push back on that for me? Uh, Let's start with the fact that they completely dropped it. Right. Ever since the Russians didn't actually fix the election for Donald Trump, the entire narrative has changed. And, you know, even Glenn Beck told uh, Dave Smith recently, they're like, yeah, I never should have supported the war with Iraq. Well, why not? I mean, if it's a civilizational war between us and the Muslims and this is now the Islamic caliphate, you know, combined Muslim world, as they call it, civilization out there, rising now against the West. And and the suicide bombers are the vanguard edge set to overthrow our society. Well, then why'd we just quit? Right. How come? I mean, we still got a few troops in, in Syria and Iraq. I don't want to say that we don't, but the entire narrative that we're in a civilizational war against Islam has ended. And even from the National Review and from Bill Crystal and the warmed over weekly standard that is the bulwark, right? Um, from all the right wing radio hosts, you know, um, maybe if they want to stick up for Israel, they'll like bring up some Muslim demonization. But for most part, the entire narrative changed. 
And you know why, and your audience knows why too. Because the weapons that you use to fight a cold war against Russia are way more expensive. That's why. Because <laughs> they want to get rid of submarines and aircraft carriers and long-range bombers. And, you know, sending GIs to patrol Pashtuns in Paktika province, it only kicks back so many trillions over so many years. And so they want a new Cold War. And that means then Middle Eastern wars, fighting insurgencies against countries we're occupying in the Middle East, like those are a big distraction and a diversion from the real prize. And what that means is everyone in your audience who ever believed those things about the civilizational war between America and Islam and all those, they're suckers who believed lies, who were told to them by cynical liars, who were cynically lying to you. Guess what? The government in Algeria, American sock puppet dictator. Libya, well, Gaddafi, Bush did bring him in from the cold and lie with him for a minute until Obama stabbed him in the back seven years later. Tunisia, Ben Ali was backed by America the whole time. Egypt, Mubarak. Yemen, Abdullah Saleh. Oman, I forgot the guy's name, Sheikh Sultan Emir, what's his name? You got all the got all the different emirs of the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi and whatever, all Sikhs and emirs and sultans. You have, of course, the uh, kings of Arabia and the Saudi royal family. Uh, the only democracy there is, will it be the Salmans or the Bin Nayefs will be the dominant faction of cousins who rule that royal monarchy, the same as it is in Bahrain, the same as it is in Qatar, the same as it is in Kuwait. These are all American sock puppet dictatorships. Somebody told you they were combined together into the Muslim world coming to get you? Those are American colonial provinces. They have no power at all that they don't get out of the barrel of American guns. Yep. So, sorry, they were jerking your chain. In fact, what happened was Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton backed a bunch of bin Ladenite terrorists. Then George Bush and Bill Clinton turned them against us by bombing Iraq and occupying military bases in Saudi Arabia in order to not just wage Iraq War One, but all of Iraq War One and a half that lasted throughout the entire Bill Clinton years. And that was the motive for bin Laden. And of course, also, as you mentioned, American support for uh, the Israelis in their occupations of the Palestinians and the Lebanese. And that quote yep. that you read was a reference to what's now called the first Kana massacre, of 1996 because the Israelis replicated the same damn thing in 2006 when they slaughtered some more civilians in the same damn place. Um, but in the first Kana massacre, it was Shimon Peres um, invaded Lebanon in what was called Operation Grapes of Wrath. And it was a UN shelter where 106 women and children uh, were shelled. Um, and it was nothing but women and children. I don't even think it was even men. And they were there. seeking shelter in a, a UN shelter. You'd think this is the spot we're not going to be attacked. And the Israelis do that all the time, too. They do that in Gaza. They do it quite deliberately all the time. It's the Daia Doctrine, they call it, named after a neighborhood in Beirut that they leveled um, back, you know, during one of these incursions. I forget which. Um, 
And, and then the strategy was they adapted a whole doctrine about it, which was what you do is you level whole neighborhoods. You just yeah. commit mass illegal Geneva Convention defying war crimes against the civilian population. That'll break their spirit. That'll break their will. You know, like the Germans bombing London or the English bombing Berlin. <laughs> and we're just terror bombing. You know, that'll yeah. show them. Um, and so that's their doctrine. And and look, again, as you put it, if if people want to believe, and I think this is foolish, but fine, if people want to believe that bin Laden was nothing but Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mastermind of our era, that every word of his mouth was, you know, a cynical lie. Um, doesn't matter. This was his successful recruitment shtick. And you know, if he'd sat around denouncing Hollywood movies and gay marriage and whatever all day, he would have never gotten a single suicide bomber out of that. You know, and in fact, um, you point out that Khomeini did there was cultural pushback there and didn't mobilize right. anyone. Right. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. I mean, America had committed terrible crimes against the Iranians. But for whatever reason, Khomeini decided to mostly harp on America's cultural uh, liberalism and libertinism, I guess. And it didn't get him anywhere. Um, nobody cared. I mean, people were upset about the same thing as him, the same thing as American right-wingers are upset about now. Um, right. But was that enough to get suicide bombers out of it, to, to recruit, you know, legions of people to fight a war against the United States? No way. Um, and it, But for bin Laden, he just chose uh, more wisely to focus on American foreign policies. And in fact, you know, Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, as they call him from Flight 11, um, who was the major ringleader of the hijackers inside the United States. He, uh, as I mentioned, they were uh, engineering students studying in, in Hamburg, Germany. And uh, he and his buddy, Ramsey bin Al-Sheib, would talk about, who was a co-conspirator in the plot, um, would talk about how um, the Americans must pay for what the Israelis are doing. And when Sh uh, Shimon Perez launched Grapes of Wrath in 96, Atah filled out his last will and testament which was essentially like symbolically him joining the army and swearing his life to dedicated to this cause of somehow getting revenge against the Israelis for what they'd done. Um, yep. That was about, I think, a day or two days before the Khanna massacre. Then later that year, bin Laden puts out his declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. Pretty subtle, huh? Um, and in there, he goes on and on about Kana, and, and that was, I'm not sure if that's the quote you read or not, but he does talk all about uh, Kana in there, in that declaration of war. He, he talked about it to the media too. Um, but what happened was, um, and this is in the book, Perfect Soldiers by Terry McDermott, when Atta and Bin Al-Sheib read Bin Laden's declaration of war, they said, this guy, this is what we want to do. This is, you know, this is the- They the went to meet him and said, how can we help? Them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so yeah. they said that was it. And then they traveled to Afghanistan. They met with bin Laden. They're on video with bin Laden in Afghanistan uh, as they went there and were recruited. And um, then, you know, became the hijackers. Were sent uh, for training and wherever and, and came and led the September 11th attack. And that was how he recruited them was by complaining about what is it? now think about this right it's september the 13th and you're trying to explain to your auntie that see the saudis and egyptians hiding out in afghanistan are really mad about america supporting israel in lebanon 
And so they recruited <laughs> these guys from Saudi and Egypt and the UAE to crash some planes in New York. And it's kind of a mess, but it's true. You know, it reminds me of, um, there was a thing, I'm sure this is gone from YouTube now. Link rot on the internet is a real problem. Wayback Machine, you need to step up your game. Um, but there was this thing on um, YouTube years ago of this guy who's sort of a stereotype, I mean this in a friendly way, sort of a stereotypical Brooklyn Jew um, who has very much a Brooklyn Jewish accent and manner about him. And he's just like this big guy with his big bald head and all this and just his mannerism was just great. And he's debunking the bombs in building seven trutherism, which is total BS. And he's saying, listen, 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 the Israelis did not put bombs in building seven to bring down building seven. That's not what it was. You know what it was? The Israelis killed Lebanese children with American weapons. And that's what motivated these Saudis and Egyptians to do this to us. That is the real cause. It is Israel's fault, but not the way you say. It's America's government's fault for supporting Israel in their horrific sins against innocent people. That is what has brought this on. And I just love the thing because, you know, the caricature, you might think the guy is just a total Zionist and he's going to be willing to go to bat for Israel no matter what or something. And he's like, hell no, I'm a New Yorker, you know. Screw Israel. If this is the cost of supporting Israel. In fact, oh, I just let me read this quote to you real quick because I just tweeted out tonight in a totally separate context. It has nothing to do with uh, what we're talking about here, but it was just another example. Um, this is from Eric Alterman, who is a, a liberal Democrat writer for The Nation magazine. And I forget when he said this. I think it would have been back in like 2008, 2009. He said, I think that bin Laden and 9-11 was to some degree inspired by U.S. support for Israel. I think the great deal of terrorist attacks and the sort of pool of potential terrorists who want to attack the United States are inspired by United States support for Israel. I'm not saying we shouldn't support Israel for that reason. I'm saying, damn it, if that's the price we have to pay, then I'm willing to pay it. I'm just saying, let's be honest about it. All right, 3,000 dead, a 20-year-long war with another 2 million dead, 10 trillion wasted, 30,000 guys shoot themselves in the head. Hey, that's worth it to support Israel. Let's just be honest about it, says Eric Alterman. I say it's not worth it. Not at all. Couldn't possibly be. This reminds me of, there's a, now I can't find it, but you have a similar quote. So for, for people who haven't, uh, picked up this book, and you ab- you absolutely should. Um, there's a bunch of quotes at the beginning of chapters. Some of them are hilarious uh, at, the, at the beginning of these chapters. Uh, but it reminds me of one of them. Um, I thought there w- there was a quote by by someone that basically said, "Like, yeah, that's that's the price. Okay, like that that's the price for doing this." But I'm I'm just gonna read a couple of my favorite quotes so people can hear him. One of them is Barack Obama, who says. Turns out I'm really good at killing people. And 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 I want to point out one thing I learned from your book is on day three, he starts drone striking in uh, Pakistan. Mm-hmm. And um, something I didn't realize was they just cla- – like after a drone struck, if they were fighting age men among the dead, they're automatically terrorists 
unless posthumously they can prove that they weren't terrorists. Which no one is <laughs> investigating to try to prove. And if of locals, course. Right. If locals showed up with evidence, they'd ignore it anyway. Right. Right. So this is how we avoid like, well, it's not civilian casualties. It's like they must be terrorists because they're they're men. Um, so that I found interesting. And also on another thing I found interesting about that chapter was there was almost it seems almost like some of the uh, drone strikes in Pakistan caused what I might call a terrorist diaspora. And like, what? oh, we're gonna we're gonna now go back to our home countries and germinate our terrorism there. And so That's you nice. can see all these this this uh, the results of this all over the place in the Middle East. Um, I know, and in fact, you know, Kiriaku. I wish I had known this when I wrote the book. I found this out later from Kiriaku, uh, the former CIA officer who was involved yep. in operations in Pakistan, helped arrest Abu Zubaydah and so forth. Um, mm -hmm. And he said there were twenty nine Al Qaeda guys left in Pakistan when Obama started the drone war in 09. That's who they were after. That's who he ordered the CIA to wage that drone war against. 29 guys who, you know, I mean, just think about it. Pakistan is already exile, essentially. Um, yeah. Especially the guys who were stuck out in the wilderness, living with the Pakistani Taliban out in the tribal territories and so forth. Um, it's yeah, not like they were all in they would Karachi, have Shriveled you know. up and died, and that would have been the end, yeah. Yeah, um, and then so... One of the consequences of that is, as you say, a lot of those guys escaped and went back to where they were from and helped spread their terrorism. There, they had been somewhat neutralized. Now, they were, you know, spread to the wind. The other thing was that it helped Al-Qaeda eyes the local Afghan, or pardon me, the local Pakistani Taliban, the Tariqi Taliban, uh, which is a separate yep. group from the Afghan Taliban, and who, you know, all these guys essentially are very conservative, backwards, old you know, kind of hillbillies. The Al Qaeda guys are more like Leninists. You know, they are radicals. They want to overthrow the world and and you know make it perfect their way, not just try to control their own little plot of land and leave it at that if they're lucky. You know what I mean? Which is much more yep. like the local kind of Taliban view. So the um the Al Qaeda guys really helped to radicalize the local Pakistanis. And then you know you talk about diaspora a whole group of these guys from the Pakistani Taliban. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm leaving out a step. In order to be allowed to wage the CIA drone war, bin Laden, I'm, bin Laden, same difference. <laughs> I make Obama, that mistake often. Bin Laden, <laughs> yeah, um, um, Barack Obama had to bribe the Pakistani government. Um, yep. And so the, the payoff was, we'll help you wage your war against the Pakistani Taliban if you'll allow us to wage our war against the Al-Qaeda guys hiding amongst them. So the, at that time, the Pakistani Taliban had taken over the entire Swat Valley. And for the most part, the Pakistani government's attitude was, we don't give a damn what happens in the Northwestern tribal territories. Man, those people are crazy. In the, but they're isolated in their mountain valleys and they can leave us the hell alone and we'll leave them alone. But occasionally they get a little too out of control and need pushing back. So here they'd taken over the entire Swat Valley and the Pakistani government decided they were going to go bomb them back out again. And Obama promised to help them do it. So what they did was they fled to Afghanistan for safe haven. And then you'll never guess. But the Afghan National Intelligence Directorate, aka CIA sock puppets, they hired these guys 
to get revenge attacks against the Pakistani government. Oh, you guys like harboring the Afghan Taliban on your side of the line, huh? Well, now we're harboring the Pakistani Taliban on our side of the line to do tit-for-tat attacks against you. And maybe we'll even use these guys to help us fight against the Afghan Taliban. Well, but then guess what? I know you know the story. What happened was those same guys in 2013 or 14 hoisted up the black flag and declared that they were now to be known as the Islamic State Khorasan and were not loyal to bin Laden and Zawahiri, but instead to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, grown up, turned into the Islamic State Caliphate. Um, and then America allied with the Afghan Taliban to fight against them. <laughs> you can read in the Washington Post, just type in the Taliban's Air Force, and you can read about American top-tier special operations forces then turning around and allying with the Afghan Taliban to fight against these Pakistani Taliban guys now calling themselves ISIS. And it's those that's the group that bombed the 13 Marines and others at the airport uh, on the way out uh, last um, end of September or beginning of October. I'm sorry, I forget. Um, and, and those are the guys who are doing the suicide bombings and attacks against Hazaras and others now. Um, in the country. Uh, I saw people complaining the other day that all this terrorism is happening and how come the Taliban can't protect us? They promised to protect us from ISIS and they're not doing a good enough job because they're in charge of security now. And this yeah. is all America's fault, man. I don't know what else to say about this. This is because of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton and George Bush and Barack Obama and Donald Trump and Joe Biden all along, by the way, he was a senator starting in 73 and has been bad on everything this whole time. And it's just true. Like, I don't know what else to say. Bin Laden is 99% responsible for his actions, but America's responsible for the rest. Just like with, yep. you know, the, all of the rest of these guys. You know, you can say Assad and, and the Ayatollahs and the Taliban and Vladimir Putin and whatever, they've all got their sins. But America is the superpower. America is number one. America is the unipolar global hegemon. And America's the one who has made the world this way. Yep. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Sorry. And I, I, I do to make one help to help Americans feel better. It's American government. It's not you unless you're voting for these people. Uh, That's right. It's not you. Uh, but it is the American government. I mean, you know, one thing that I hadn't realized was that Jimmy Carter had really, I think you called it, he does, he didn't use this language, but you did. Like he, he designated the Persian Gulf like an American lake. Like, hey, hey guys, this is ours now. And it's a, it's a warning to Russia, um, or the Soviets, I guess at the time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and really a lot really does start with Jimmy Carter. Not that, not that, you know, we weren't involved earlier with the 1953 overthrow of uh, the democratically elected government in Iran that we just decided not to like um, and all that kind of stuff. But um, it really does start with Jimmy Carter. And, and you draw a really great um, narrative starting with uh, starting with the 1979 um, Iranian uh, revolution and then <laughs> Iran hostage crisis and everything, everything that kind of happens after that. So, um, I, I want to summarize something you just said. I, well, maybe this isn't exactly, but it's one of these quotes that I love uh, in the beginning of one of your 
uh, chapters, which is a Henry Kissinger quote. Sometimes they say the quiet part out loud, and I just don't. Yeah. I just don't get it. I love this quote. He says, "It may be dangerous to be America's enemy, but to be America's friend is fatal." Yep. <laughs> it's it's uh, that's Mr. how Jack says it. himself. You know. <laughs> I know. I also want to read, like, I don't read all these, but on page 257, there's a series of quotes from Donald Trump, and then it ends with one with Joe Biden. But there's two quotes where he's, like, saying kind of the things that you would want, right? Like, hey, he's pointing out the problems, and then he gets elected, and he just flips. Oh, I want Boeing and Lockheed Martin and Raytheon to take those orders and hire lots of people and make it, like, suddenly... His anti-war stance is gone, and he now wants business for uh, what he previously called the military-industrial complex yep. uh, that she was opposed to. Um, I mean, there's one other – W. Bush W. Bush ran on a humble foreign policy. Barack Obama ran on, you know, don't do stupid S, he called it. Um, yep. Uh, Donald Trump ran on the same thing. Uh, Joe Biden's the only president who didn't even really have to bother pretending to be anti-war after four years of liberals rallying around the national security state and accusing Donald Trump of not being patriotic and warmongering enough. Biden, the only thing he even was pressured to sound dovish on a year ago uh, or two years ago when he started running was Yemen. And then he promised to end the war in Yemen um, exactly two years ago, and then he took power a year and a half ago and promised to end it and said he was ending it, said he was ordering an end to it, and then didn't. <laughs> and right. kept, kept supporting him the whole time anyway. Um, although now that one is, I think, probably due to no credit to him. Um, there is a ceasefire, uh, a two-month ceasefire. They're about halfway through right now, so we'll see how that goes. Um, yeah. But... Um, yeah, if, uh, if, and look, I, W. Bush never meant it, right? He's New World Order boy's son. We all knew. I knew. Again, I'm telling you, I, it's just true. In 1994, the moment I heard he was running for governor, I went, bam, we're going back to Iraq. You see right there how they're going to do that. There's just no question about that. Um, and Barack Obama also was a liar. You know, Barack Obama, if you remember in the in the um, election of 2007 and eight on the debate stage, there would be Mike Gravel and Dennis Kucinich over here, and then the three Hillary's over here, Hillary, Obama, and Edwards. And TV just couldn't make it any more plain that you can pick one of the three Hillary's. You may not pick Kucinich or Gravel, you know, because those two guys really mean it when they say they're anti-war. And Obama got yeah. up there and was like, well, look, we shouldn't have done Iraq, but we got to get out of there responsibly eventually. And we're going to increase the war in Afghanistan. And we're going to empower the CIA to go and fight Al-Qaeda all over the world. And he said all that in the campaign. And he said yeah. he was going to Pakistan in the campaign and, and John McCain criticized him for being reckless and talking about who he was going to bomb. In fact, here's another funny anecdote there. Somebody, I think it was Obama, said, yeah, we're going to Pakistan. And, and McCain had criticized him for it. And then a reporter followed up and said, hey, man, McCain's criticizing you for being too hawkish on Pakistan. That's pretty bad. I mean, and I don't know where they got this question from, but they asked him, they go, but look, Obama, I mean, you wouldn't use nukes in Pakistan, would you? And Obama goes, no. 
Who said anything about nukes? Do you want to say anything about nukes? Nobody's fucking nuking. Pa- oh, sorry. Nobody's <laughs> nuking Pakistan. Okay. Um, then Hillary Clinton came out and goes, see, this just goes to show the naivete of Barack Obama. You don't ever announce beforehand who you're not going to nuke. <laughs> America's policy has always been, we reserve the right to use nuclear first strikes against any nation in the world, and that includes Pakistan. And if Barack Obama was an experienced enough statesman like me, he would know better than to promise to not nuke Pakistan. Hey, should get along with Putin. Um, and even even when they, look, we know Pakistan has nukes, but the hypothetical here was not a war with Pakistan. It was a war with Pakistan against their enemies, right. the Pakistani Taliban. That's different, <laughs> you know? God dang, yeah. man. We're going to work with Pakistan to nuke itself. Seriously, not- man. Why would we nuke a bunch of tribesmen out in the mountains, man? <laughs> what the hell is she even talking about? You don't well, ever it- promise to not nuke a bunch of hillbillies how in the northwestern federally administered tribal territories because otherwise they should be worried that you just might yeah (laughs) um it's amazing that people didn't elect her to be our leader you know wow dear it's it's because she's a woman that's why i better run man i probably wore a hole through your drum already no, this is great, and uh, man, I feel like there's so much more I could talk to you about here, but I don't, you know, I, <laughs> I know I'm impinging on your time, so I go on I, too long. It's my fault, not you. No, it's it's awesome. I could I could keep going because I think I mean, and I, it's weird because we can't really we can't do for the audience in a one or even a two hour show. We can't do what I want, which is explain all this shit in detail. <laughs> like you have to read the book because there's so much we could talk about syria we could talk about yemen i think most people don't even know what aqap is or the houthis or but what's been going on with syria or even uh you know you write about the legitimacy of the uh parts of the arab spring that were undermined later by uh that was undermined by the u.s and and usurped for other purposes and and how that went and there's just so much in here i'll tell you what you um, can do though if you go to, uh, if for your audience, if you guys go to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Scott Horton show and click on playlists and there's a video adaptation that I did of enough already where I'm sitting oh, right in this chair that. facing the other way, uh, and explain, I essentially go through the whole book, um, oh, awesome. on video and it's in, they're like, you know, five to 10 minute long chapters. And I go through the whole book. So I will uh, put a link to that list. here. Yeah. yeah, I'll put a link to that for people so they can um, so they can check it out. Because if you're not going to read the book, do that at least. Because uh, yeah, that is for sure. It's uh, it's great. And the so, audio book um, is out now too. So if people do a lot of driving around, then uh, are you reading the audio book or do you have? Uh, yeah, it's me. You got someone? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, Fools Aaron and Enough already both are out in audio book. Excellent. Well, look, uh, Scott, I really appreciate your time. Um, I love talking to you. You're always a wealth of information. And, uh, you know, I probably pay attention more than most people to some of this stuff, but way less than I should. Um, and and way less than I'm, you know, I, I still feel pretty illiterate about a lot of the stuff until I go read a book like this or or like I said, Max Blumenthal's book was, was good also to give context. And, and you know what, um, look, man, just read antiwar.com every day. 
You'll I was going to say, and I was going to say that website is great as well. Like there's just constant stuff. Um, so I really appreciate it. And uh, thank you so much for joining. Tell people, remind people how they can find you. I know you said your YouTube channel. What are the best ways to find you and follow your work? Sure. So uh, first of all, I'm at scotthorton.org. I got 5,700 something interviews going back 19 years there to the very beginning of Iraq War II at wow. scotthorton.org. And that entire archive also is at youtube.com slash Show. And you can sign up for the podcast feed on iTunes and Stitcher and Spotify and all of those things. Um, then I uh, am the editorial director of antiwar.com, which is really the most important project on the internet. I really hope people look at it every day. Um, and I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute. That's at libertarianinstitute.org. And then uh, the books are Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism, and Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and also the great Ron Paul, the Ron Paul or the Scott Horton Show interviews, 2004 through 2019, um, which are the interview transcripts. But um, And I'm working on a book right now uh, about the background to the war in Ukraine. Oh, that will be fascinating. That'll be great. There you go. So it cool. might be a little we're, while, but we're working on it. <laughs> well, at this rate, we'll still be at war. It'll still be happening. Yeah, so, I um, think you're probably right. I mean, if we're not all dead in an H-bomb exchange by then. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, man. I hope to uh, have you back again soon and, and see you at the next, uh, I don't know, Libertarian conference or whatever. But uh, take care. Appreciate your Thank time. Thank you very much for having me again. Appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening. Uh, I can't recommend I can't recommend Scott's book enough. I'll, we'll put a link to to purchase it in the show notes. Also, please take a moment to think about someone you know who might benefit from listening to this discussion and go ahead and share the content with them. You can do it publicly or you can do it clandestine CIA style if you want. Just don't kill any civilians along the way. Thanks to those of you who support Unsafe Space financially. If you'd like to join them, and you're not one of them, please head over to unsafespace.com. We can do that. And uh, thanks for watching again. We'll see you next time. Thanks for sticking around until the end. If you're new to Unsafe Space, check out our deep content library that includes discussions with everyone from James Lindsay to Brett Weinstein. And please consider helping to fund our work by visiting unsafespace.com slash donate. You can find us on a variety of social media platforms, and you can find a community of like-minded individuals on our Unsafe Space Discord server, which is open to financial supporters at any level. We hope to see you there. Warning. This is an unsafe space. Dangerous ideas have been detected. The content of this production may be upsetting to Brian Stelter. Please do not expose him to it. For completely legitimate reasons, Taylor Lawrence is requesting any information you may have about the following individuals. The Twitter subroutine appears to be malfunctioning. Pay no attention to it. Did you know that the word liberty is a dog whistle for insurrectionists? If you think about it, no one should be allowed to express opinions. But don't. Think about it, I mean. That's not your job.
thinking has been scientifically proven to be less efficient than compliance. Science, scientific, and scientifically are registered trademarks of the World Economic Forum. Unauthorized use is prohibited. Computer voice Curtis, never mind, that last line is fake news. Please disregard it and return to your safe space immediately. There will be cake.